Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to this Clash of the Titles Christmas Countdown Special! Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas, everyone! Hello and welcome to this Christmas Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two Christmas movies with something in common. Go head-to-head to see which one does it better. And welcome to part two of this week's Christmas Cop Clash. So, on Monday's episode, Riggs and Murtaugh bickered their way round Los Angeles and hated on Mrs. Murtaugh's cooking in Lethal Weapon. And today, we're heading back to the City of Angels for another festive treat as Bruce Willis stars in the action movie that changed action movies forever. And yes, it's a Christmas movie. From 1988, we're talking Die Hard. Walk out of here or be carried out. But have no illusions, we are in charge. Think, damn it, think. We've got a fire alarm. I thought I told all of you I want radio silence. Sorry, I didn't get that message. Mayday, terrorists have seized the Nakatomi Plaza. This channel is reserved for emergency calls only. Do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee guy. We'll have a Christmas champion at the end of the show, but which Christmas film will it be? Let's find out. It's a Clash of the Titles Christmas Countdown Special. Release the Kraken. Hello, Clash Butters. Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. And very quickly, if you haven't subscribed to us already, please do so if you'd be kind enough. Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your pods, any of them is good with us. And it would also be massively appreciated from the three of us if you could rate and review us. It means a lot. Thank you. Uh, Chris, very quickly, tell us about January. Yes, uh, if you've got any suggestions for pairings, we're going to do the films that you pick in January. So email us, show at clashpod.com with a good pairing and do email us two films don't email us one film and say I couldn't think of another one but this film's good so you guys think of one that's not how this works that's the challenge that's the challenge right there (laughs) 
Challenge is finding two. Yeah. Challenge is one. I've, I've got films for the last 18 months I've not been able to figure out what to pair them with. Oh, haven't we heard about them? Yeah. <laughs> They're a struggle. Well, there was a Christmas one we had a problem with that we all, want, we all wanted to do. Such Famously. Mm, yeah. I was like, oh, this is a problem. Weren't you? What was that? Home Alone. Mm. Oh, oh, are you still smarting about that? Only because 30 people wanted it that, that are our listeners, our loyal, yeah, lovely go. listeners. Here we it go. feels personal. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, listen, I... Oh, so just to clear, it doesn't always go your just, way. Just to clear the air. It's not me. It's the listeners, right? Mm. And, uh, and I want to clear the air with everyone, you, the listeners, but mainly you. <laughs> Home Alone, fine, but doing it with Home Alone Two, I just didn't want to do. And I'm pleased, sort of, that we did Love Actually in the holiday instead because that was just it was fun. Let's talk about Die Hard. All right. These were my choices, Lethal Weapon versus Die Hard. Um, I was going to pick Home Alone versus Home Alone 2, and then I didn't. Uh, Victoria <laughs> was our police liaison with Riggs and Merton for Lethal Weapon, which means Chris is on the door for the Nakatomi Corporation's Christmas party in Die Hard. Chris, he's limbering up. <laughs> Take us on a journey. It's Die Hard in a building. <laughs> <laughs> It's much easier when the title is a genre. <laughs> Lovely. I mean, I could read you the tagline as well, because the tagline was unnecessarily long and detailed. Uh, the tagline for Die Hard was, High above the city of LA, a team of terrorists has seized a building, taken hostages and declared war. One man has managed to escape. An off-duty cop hiding somewhere inside. He's alone, tired, and the only chance anyone has got. It's not on the poster. It's on the poster. It's on the poster for <laughs> well, Die Hard. Well, because Bruce Willis wasn't a star at the time, so they had a lot of space to fit <laughs> right. next to the tower because they didn't put his face on it. It was like his <laughs> yeah. face was really in the background and then you got the tower and then we got all this space to fill. Someone okay. come up with a... a, a a, a, a limerick. It wasn't even the only tagline. It also said above that, 40 stories of sheer adventure, Ooh. which is an actual tagline. Have you seen um, some of the uh, interesting titles that this movie had around the world? It had some great ones around the world. Uh, in Germany, it was called Die Slowly. Uh, Greece, Very Hard to Die. Norway was Action Skyscraper. Mm-hmm. This is a good one I like from Poland, <clears throat> The Glass Trap. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Well done, Poland. Uh, this feels like Eurovision. Uh, <laughs> Spain went with another good one, The Crystal Jungle. Really? All right. Yeah, a lot of talk from D'Souza and everyone who, who wrote this script about it being a jungle movie. Okay. Set in an office. Uh, Hungary's uh, rather confusing, Give Your Life Expensive. Uh, and Denmark uh, went with Mega Hard. <laughs> uh, my favourite, though, is Thailand. Big building fight. I mean, Die Hard doesn't is nonsense. It is, isn't it? It's nonsense. It's it's become a thing, but it's nonsense. And at the time, I remember the, the criticism of it was, well, what does that mean? You're just putting two words together that don't mean anything. <laughs> yeah, which is why there's all those confusing titles exactly. from foreign markets yeah, because yeah. they were like, well, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. So, but we're, we're in Thailand, big building fight. Uh, just on the on the title front, um, D'Souza, the, the writer, was offered a directing gig. He hasn't done much directing, and if he was told he could direct the film if he did a rewrite of a script that was pitched to him as Die Hard in a Building. <laughs> he turned it down. <laughs> it's insulting. Uh, so, uh, when did you first see this one, Alex? No idea. I've seen it so many times, uh, but I don't remember. I remember being very young. I remember being blown away, uh, but uh, I couldn't tell you. I think I was probably about you know. 10 or 11, so young, but uh, but yeah, it wasn't, again, a, a, mo- a movie moment that I, I remember. I just remember loving it. And Vicky? It's sort of the same, but only the end of the film. So I've seen the end of this film millions of times, but I've only seen the beginning once before I watched it in the week. 
So that's why uh, fists for toes, toes for fists, whatever it is. That really took me by surprise. I it? don't remember that. Yeah. 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 Too much feet in this movie. I knew you'd be upset about it. <laughs> Too much feet. Um, I remember being excited about this because I loved Moonlighting. <laughs> and I, so I would watch Bruce Willis films and I watched Blind Date and was disappointed and watched he did one called Sunset and disappointed. And this one didn't actually appeal to me, weirdly, as a kid. But then I remember it was the number one video for three or four months. And so when I was old enough to get someone to hire it for me, I watched it. And then I've watched it every year since, except the last five years. Like you said on the last episode, I watched it too much a little bit. And so last year, because my missus had never seen it, I watched it again. And I did feel like, yeah, I have seen this enough now. Mm. But then I enjoyed seeing it again this year. And it was nice seeing it through new eyes, fresh eyes, who, you know, was coming to it with no baggage. And she frigging loved it. So, yeah, it still works. It's magic. Yeah, but this is, I imagine, this is like, uh, you know, Christmas, it's, this, this is a Christmas movie, and I think we're talking about Christmas as a whole here. I think that is like what happens, you know, as you get older, Christmas loses its shine. Well, not for me. Until you have kids. No, it's not the It's not about the kids. Well, I mean, it is meant to be. <laughs> That's so weird. I know it's really weird, and I know that makes me sound like a terrible parent, but it gives me legitimacy, but I'm really very still much about Christmas. Like, even if I didn't have kids, I'd feel the same. I just love Christmas so very much. You didn't have enough baubles for your tree, we just heard. I know, it's I'm lazy, that's the problem. Right, okay. And um And Woolworths is short, so I don't know where else to get them. Hate, where do you go? You hate eggnog? I do, yeah. I do. I like everything else about Christmas. Okay. The, we'll get it out of the way because it's so boring. The Diet is a Christmas movie thing. I did email the screenwriter a few years ago, Steve D'Souza, and we ended up doing an interview. And he said, it is a Christmas movie, but I have to say that when I was writing it, I didn't think that it was a Christmas movie. Christmas is why he's coming out to get together with the family. It sort of made sense. If it wasn't Christmas, it would have been Easter. But when I went to the set for the first time and saw all the Christmas decorations, that's when it struck me that it was a Christmas movie and that it was going to play every Christmas on TV. And it didn't, you know, it was released in July in America and February in the UK. So it wasn't even thought of in that way at the beginning, but it obviously has become one. Let's never mention it again. (laughs) So, uh, Die Hard, uh, let's go back to The Detective, written by Roderick Thorpe. Uh, That was a novel um, that was turned into a movie starring a 52-year-old Frank Sinatra, who played a more hard-boiled character of who we know today as uh, John McClane. Uh, Back then, he was known as Joe Leland. Um, It was a hit movie, so they asked the author to write a sequel. Um, thought wanted to do something more action oriented, but it took him 10 years to write Nothing Lasts Forever, the book on which Die Hard's based, um, by which time Frank Sinatra was too old. But the story started as a dream he had the night he saw Towering in Inferno in 1975, in which he saw a man being chased through a building by men with guns in his dream. So this book was published in 1979, and it does share a lot in common with the finished film, but they changed a lot as well. So uh, the cop is visiting his daughter in the book, Mm. not his wife. Um, It's the Klaxon Oil Corporation who have done dodgy things in Chile. And so it is a genuine terrorist group led by Anton Little Tony the Red Gruber. Okay. That is the name of the villain in the original book. Uh, the hero does end up barefoot in the book. Um, he's aided by a guy uh, called Al Powell on the LA Police Department. Um, Isn't he more of a like hard as nails kind of guy though? He knows his shit. Like I, there wasn't the biggest transformation. The fact that Bruce Willis is John McClane is your everyman. He's a, a beat cop or a detective at least from New York who's come out here and he doesn't really have the skill set to deal with the situation. He's just got his wits and... 
his ability that he uh, his sharpness. But he's also a very troubled bloke. We're in his mind for the novel, and he's there's guilt for something he's done before. He's an alcoholic. Um, he's quite disturbed our hero in the book. Um, yeah, but the baddies are intending to expose this company and I think the daughter might be involved and the daughter gets dropped off the building at the end and um, the police chief, Dwayne Robinson, gets killed in the book. Um, but uh, no, one would have, no one would have minded that. that <laughs> in the film, no, maybe they should have kept that. But the tone of the novel is quite far, far uh, darker. But stuff that did make it in is crawling through the, the air ducts, dropping the C4 bomb down an elevator shaft, jumping off an exploding roof with a fire hose attached to his waist and then shooting through the window to re-enter, taping the gun to his back at the climax. That's all from the book. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, so uh, Lawrence Gordon, the producer, published, uh, purchased the rights to the book based on the cover. So suggesting that maybe you can judge a book by its cover. <laughs> I've seen the cover. It's a very cool cover. Okay. It's, a, it's, the, it's the building. It's like the poster for Die Hard, which is why I imagine they went, well, if it weren't for the book, let's put the tower on, uh, on the cover of the movie. And he asked a tennis pro called Jed Stewart to write the script. Right. Um, who was inspired, uh, his take on it, by an argument with his wife. Um, they fell out with each other. He drove off, and then halfway up the road, he realised that all he should have done was apologise. And why was he? <laughs> well, he had he had a crash on the way, didn't he? He crashed into um, a, an empty box on the freeway, and I like, had to swerve off. And he was in his cold sweat. He was like, "Jesus, what am I doing?" So, if you ever have an argument with your wife and drive off, the best thing you can do is almost die in a car accident, and that will turn turn you around, mm. both uh, literally and metaphorically. Yeah. So, adding the, that. Um, aspect of it being about a bloke and he's apologised to his wife. It was greenlit by Joel Silver, who changed the title. And we've talked about this before. I believe that Die Hard was the title of Last Boy Scout. Yeah. yeah. And he said to Shane Black, I want that. Yeah. And he wanted the top of the building to explode and he basically told um, poor Jed Stewart to piss off. But uh, <laughs> Stephen D'Souza, who he'd worked with before on Commando, which we've previously done, was going to come in. And this is when John McTiernan gets involved because Paul Verhoeven turned it down. And uh, Joel Silver collaborated with John McTiernan on Predator, but John McTiernan turned it down because he didn't want to make a terrorist movie. Yeah, he, this is where one of the big changes came about because he, he, John McTiernan says he really didn't want um, them to be terrorists. He said there's nothing fun about terrorists. If we do robbers, robbers are fun. Mm -hmm. That's a date movie. Guys trying to rob a vault is much more attractive. Um, and so he agreed once they'd figured out how to turn it into a caper mm. um, and inject joy into it is, is how he put it. And he also wanted more jokes, which is which is also why D'Souza was brought on board. Uh, and they were shooting it without knowing how it would end. It sounds like a pretty crazy shoot, to be honest, that they were just kind of making it up as they went along, which is amazing when you watch it now, how perfectly structured it is. You say that. I mean, there are a couple of points we should talk about sure. as we go through it, which because they didn't know the ending... They had to cut bits out of the start, which then make other bits not make sense later on. But we'll touch on them. Um, and because Bruce Willis was shooting Moonlighting in the day and this at night, he wasn't there all the time. So D'Souza expanded the subplot of the reporter, added scenes of Holly and the hostages, um, put the housekeeper stuff in. Well, I think that was, wasn't that actually because he was, he was shooting Moonlighting uh, during the day and then shooting Die Hard at night. And John McTiernan actually had to go to Stephen D'Souza and go, like Bruce Willis is having 20 minutes sleep in his trailer between shooting Moonlighting, <laughs> which you're overrunning. But and I think that's why he did it. I think they thought they were killing Bruce Willis. Yeah. Um, and also D'Souza had the blueprint of the building uh, by that point that they used, the, 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 the Fox building that became the Nakatomi Plaza. So he could use figure out the geography of it all and, and rewrite it on, on 
because of that. I, mean, I read this. I read the script, the Sousa's script. I'm amazed how many spelling mistakes there were in that draft. <laughs> Is that normal? No. It was very strange. Lots of people read it. Um, yeah. Maybe anyway, maybe because he day. was doing it on the fly. I'm not sure which version of this or it was. Is it because it was typewriters? And so you give someone a bit of a pass with a spelling mistake because it wasn't. Yeah, maybe so. Mm, I'd choose um, a spelling mistake of a tipex. <laughs> uh, in terms of casting, as I said, they had to offer it to Sinatra. He turned it down. Um, Clint Eastwood, uh, who Stewart, um, uh, Jeff Stewart actually wrote it for Clint Eastwood. Um, they sent it to Eastwood. Eastwood wrote across the front of it, I don't get the humour, and sent it back. And then uh, apparently it went to Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Richard Gere, Burt Reynolds, James Kahn. Um, Harrison lo- Ford. A lot of people turned it down because they thought uh, John McClane was a wimp. Really? And these testosterone. Yeah, because he spends like the first half hour kind of staying away from the terrorists, yeah. not getting involved, trying to get the trying to get the police, doing the right thing, but not doing what action heroes of the eighties were expected to do, which is take their shirt off and shoot people. Yeah, which is why it's a, it's why it's the revolutionary sort of like it changed <clears throat> everything movie. Would you have liked the Burt Reynolds version, Alex, being a you know a I would Burt fan? Would you? No. I think, and I, I genuinely think he could have done the humour as yeah. well. I think he'd have been yeah. really good at it. But it, it sounds crazy. Like they literally went to everyone before they settled on Bruce Willis. It's like a joke. Like Bruce Willis was the last choice to play John McClane. I think they even uh, looked at um, oh, what's the guy called Richard Dean Anderson. The guy who played MacGyver mm. was yeah. up for it too. God, what a different world if, if Richard Dean Anderson had been John McClane and Tom Selleck had been Indiana Jones. Yeah. But Bruce Willis got it, who was a TV star at the time. But um, the fact they offered him $5 million was sort of changed everything in Hollywood um, <laughs> because no one had been paid that much before, let alone a TV star. So there's, there's um, oh God, there's a documentary on Netflix talking about the making of Die Hard. And yeah, his agent is on there just pissing himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He cannot believe they got that deal over the line. So I, this is the thing that I, I couldn't find much on it. There's loads of people talking about the aftermath of him being paid $5 million and how like yeah. movie stars afterwards went, Bruce Willis, this is his first lead. He got $5 million. The studios this were is- livid. There was, the New- yeah. there was a New York Times article about it. The studios were livid because it meant everyone else had exactly. to suddenly go above that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But it doesn't, I've never, never really, uh, I'm assuming it was because they were down to the wire yes. and everyone had said no and filming had to start that they were going to give him any deal because there's yeah. no other explanation that I can see if or have found. Spending on, had they started spending on prep? Yeah, they had to get it out for yeah. the next summer. It was their summer blockbuster because they had this gap in their schedule. And they so. would have had five million earmarked for their big star, which the agent would have known. And so he just yeah. played the old waiting game yeah. and then got it. It's smart. Uh, Bruce Willis took it because he said, John McClane's an ordinary guy thrown into ordinary circum- extraordinary circumstances. He's not some super cop, some indestructible, unfeeling, unemotional guy. He's a guy who cares for his wife and cares about staying alive. That's what Bruce Willis said on the set of the film. Yeah, and also $5 million. <laughs> that helps. Uh, and Alan Rickman is someone that they saw on stage. This was his first film role and uh, Dangerous Liaisons he was doing on stage and they wanted someone suave, debonair and who looked good in a suit. And we've talked about this before, how boring it is when actors say, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not playing the villain. Oh, <laughs> my um, God. But uh, and I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually quoting Alan Rickman there. He, says, he said, I'm playing somebody who wants certain things in life, has made certain choices and goes after them. But I can believe it with Alan Rickman and that's why we like Hans Gruber so much. He's playing him as the hero of this story. Well, there's an interest. I mean, I've told you my Christoph Waltz story where I, we were at the junket for, I can't remember what it was. I think it was Inglorious Bastards and everyone was coming out of the room and uh, they were like, oh, 
that was really hard. I was like, well, what happened? And they were like, I just sort of said, so you're the villain of this. And then he spent seven minutes explaining why his character wasn't the villain. The Nazi. In, in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And so I walked in and I went, uh, first question, so a lot of people would call you the villain, but I don't think you are. <laughs> and he was like, this is fantastic. Yeah, I've been saying this to everyone. I'm like, have you really? How, how would I know that? But this, the thing is, but... There's an interesting thing about why Hans is kind of relevant that Alan Rickman says, I'm not the villain, because Stephen, uh, Stephen D'Souza talks about how if you're going to write a movie like this, an action movie, you do need to be writing it as the villain uh, from the villain's perspective. And the villain is the person with the plan. He yeah. is, in many ways, the protagonist. Yeah, exactly. He, said, he says that people get protagonist confused with hero. The hero isn't always the protagonist and the villain is the antagonist. And in Die Hard, the protagonist is the villain because... Um, John McClane is reacting yeah. to everything he does. He's reactive, and it's a really interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, and as I say, they shot in the Fox the Fox Plaza with office workers working around them. Uh, on their uh, they were using the 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 floor still under construction. Um, they couldn't they couldn't fire their machine guns until after five p.m. That was the rule. And they still got complaints. They had to go around and apologise to people who were working in Fox Plaza <laughs> and go, yeah, sorry about the gunfire. Sorry about uh, uh, all, all the lots and lots of gunfire. And one thing on Alan Rickman, he, did, he didn't want to do it initially. He'd, he'd only been in LA about two days. Um, and they came to him and they were like, we want to give you this. And he was like, I don't want to do an action movie. Uh, and in the end, he decided to do it. Uh, and he says, I think they got me because I was extremely cheap. <laughs> Uh, which you would hope, uh, like uh, after they've paid their main guy five million dollars, it's like left. who who can we get this guy <laughs> over here? He let's just, get that for sandwiches. Mm, let's get that English guy <laughs> and get that ballet dancer. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> uh, like you said, they'd seen him in Dangerous Liaisons, and they were like, this guy, this guy is going to be our Hans Gruber. But uh, McTiernan says uh, once we started to see what he was able to do on set, it was like, hey, get the fuck out of his way, just let him do it. <laughs> so should we talk about the film? Yeah. Um, anyone here a fan or, or has read uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces? No. By Joseph Campbell? No. From 1949. So that's about the hero's journey. A lot of screenwriters use it. I'm going to go through this film using the hero's journey. Oh, lovely. Yeah. <laughs> um, because it really does stick to, to that template, as great action movies and adventure movies do. So we'll kick off with mm -hmm. the... Oh, just because I... Only because I did it on Vicky's episode. I'm, I'm going to do it on this one. Can we start with... That fucking sexy font when Die Hard slams together <laughs> on the screen. You know what era it is. It's that blue faded to white, that metallic look. Bang, Die Hard. That is a sexy font. So we kick off with the ordinary world. Yes. That's what needs to be established. Uh, introducing average cop John McClane. So we start off with some a sexy font, Alex. A sexy font. Yeah, there you go. Um, we, open on, we open on John McClane's wedding ring, yes. which is a nice touch. Yep. Um, he meets the fist with toes guys. He does. <laughs> who could be our MVP of the film because a lot happens because of him giving him that bit of advice. Yeah. Yep. Some might say that scene is just there to justify <laughs> him taking his shoes off. Have you? Uh, well, you you didn't know about it. I've tried it. You I've, tried making fists with your toes. No, after I've, after no, I've done across glass. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> what I thought you were going to say. Why? To get rid of jet lag. What? what? I've gone to LA and in my hotel room, I've done fists with toes and it's like, oh, yeah, why am I doing this? Yeah. What's wrong with me? It makes no uh, sense And to then me. you have a shower and a coffee. The, exactly what the guy says you don't need to do. Don't have a shower and a coffee. Have a fucking shower and a coffee. <laughs> uh, fucking weirdo. 
we cut to the to the Nakatomi Plaza and we've got Ellis. What about just to establish that not only is Bruce Willis a married and a great guy who's carrying a bear with him, which oh, yeah. he's a thoughtful guy. He's clearly taking that bear for his kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same bear appears at the end of Hunt for Red October. It's a John McTinn in trademark. <laughs> but the air hostess, as he walks past her, she is like... Yeah, Hello! <laughs> She's not messing about. That look she gives him is like hubba hubba. It's because I found, and I'm guilty of this as well. When you when you see a man being fatherly, it is very attractive, unless it's I found it's your actual partner. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. It doesn't rub off on Mark. When Mark does something fatherly, I'm not like whoa I'm just like yeah get it done but if I see your dad in the park I'm like are you here by yourself honestly I'm a fucking nightmare the man deserves better uh, he sits in the front seat with Argyle his driver rather than the back seat so we really know he's the common man this is a decent bloke John McClane yeah um, the filmmakers were worried that, that, that this, did, this film didn't start with a kill and not enough was happening early on but I think it's it's it helps this film that we establish the characters so well before sure. the deaths start happening. But it's you won't see that in many other action movies. Uh, it's, it's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, but I, I love the start of this film. The slow build tension in this film is one of the greatest bits. I also like the use of Christmas in Hollis, the mm. rap song in that one. In the script, it says, uh, Stephen Seas right, and damned if it isn't the fat boys or Run DMC doing a revisionist number on White Christmas or something. And they found that with Christmas in Hollis. Um, Argyle then says he's going to wait for him in the car. Very and Argyle odd. seems to get hammered. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know I get why he's doing it, because I think he's running the, oh, okay. the meter running up, the so, he, right. so, he'll, so he'll get more money. But we talked about this in the holiday uh, last week. He's just getting really drunk before driving off, isn't he? I Because I, I, I counted, because I, from my angle, I'm like, I would be so bored. Like I, I like listening to music on the speakers in a car. After about ten minutes, I'm like, "Fuck this! Yeah. Where's the booze?" But I think you only see him drinking one small whiskey, and it's only after he finds out that there is terrorists in the building. So I think we can give Argyle a pass on really? this. Really? Yeah. So for the rest of that two hours, he's not touching any. If he, if he is, they've gone. We probably can't show this on screen <laughs> yeah. uh, and note to the makers of the holiday. But the thing is, for years, and I mean, up until probably about four years ago, so as a grown-up, I was convinced that the drink-driving laws in America were different because the <laughs> amount of times you see someone have a drink and get in a car. I thought, well, just because the roads in certain parts are more sparse, empty, the law must be different. Mm. And it's not. Mm. Um, he gets into the building. I remember how futuristic that touchscreen oh, give monitor on. was. The world's most unnecessary touchscreen computer. But it blew my mind at the time. I can mm. remember. That just looked like it was from fucking space yeah. but there cool. again the fascination with early technology that is a piece of technology that makes the job harder <laughs> it would be so much quicker for him to go she's on that floor yeah, yeah but dub- doubly so because the guy goes yeah just uh, type a name <laughs> in there and he types it in uh, after a while finds her and then the security guy goes yeah it's the part in the 30th floor they're the only ones here. <laughs> but how did you feel about me entirely wasting your time by making you type in an name to that machine? Yeah, exactly. For literally no reason, because they are... There's no one else here. Yeah. It's the 30th floor. <laughs> yeah. The emblem of the Nakatomi company is based on a samurai helmet. Mm. Bit of boring Tilly trivia there for you. Um, what is going on at this Christmas party? There is sex and drugs. And this is a wild party for Christmas Eve in your frigging office. And it's a work party as well. It's so a work I party. I don't feel bad because like Holly rings the kids. She's like, yeah, I can't come home because... Um 
going to have a party, but it's happening it's Christmas Eve. <laughs> it is Christmas Eve. <laughs> Cheryl, well. Cheryl Baker's shagging on a desk. <laughs> yeah. And all Not that one. we, all we, all we hear from that kid, every time the, her daughter appears on the screen, she goes, please just come home, mummy. Please come home. And she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I just got to sort of this deal. And then, you know, there's other shit Maybe. going on. And I'm going, I am going to have a drink, actually. <laughs> now, Bruce Willis is meant to be this everyman, like, character like the first time we've got an action hero who's an everyman he gets to that party he has passed a drink and he sips it and puts it back mm-hmm. ain't no everyman i know fair enough it's a free no he wants a beer drink. though what i took from that is he doesn't want some poncy la cocktail mm-hmm. and then a guy kisses him on the cheek he doesn't want any of this la shit he wants a fucking beer yeah. and arguably it is a disgusting looking drink it's, but someone it's, says it's like grape juice coloured. What yeah, is it? I think. Then this, this, I spent too much time no, on this. Please. I think it's a Negroni. Okay. It's exactly the same colour as Negroni, but with no ice and no accoutrements, <laughs> no, like no orange peel Ridiculous. in it. Which already is like that's a dick move to <laughs> throw a party and serve that as a drink in a tiny plastic glass that's mm-hmm. half full. On top of that, the Nakatomi Corporation has six hundred and forty million dollars. <laughs> In its safe, fucking spend a bit on the booze. Buy some ice. Spend a bit on the booze. Make this a proper party. No wonder everyone's doing coke. <laughs> well, and we're getting to that because I just I mentioned that uh, we first meet Ellis when he's creeping on Holly. Now we meet him making a call. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he missed a bit. <laughs> yeah. So so uh, that's not the line in the script. Interestingly, in the script, Takashi says Ellis is in charge of international acquisitions, and McLean says that explains the recent deal with Bolivia. Nice. <laughs> oh. Yeah. But no, Mr. Bit's good as Mr. well. Bit it's, is it feels good. like something John would say. So uh, I found a, a great interview with Hart Bockner, who plays Ellis uh, from Den of Geek a few years ago. This is this the this is an amazing story. If it's the one. I yeah. Think. He says the first day I worked, we hadn't discussed it. I showed up and I had the beard, and my take on Ellis was that I always feel that when you're playing a bad guy you look for their insecurity which drives their behaviour while the character was a bad guy he was certainly ridiculously obnoxious and a fine everyone's ointment so I came at it from its coke behaviour and the coke mask is insecurity mm. so he got bigger and bigger his performance and McTiernan did not like it he hated it he really didn't like it he told him I want something smooth I want Cary Grant yeah. and okay. that's not what no. Hart Bockner is delivering <laughs> And he said, get rid of it, calm down. But I stuck to my guns. He came back the next day. Um, he's doing the same performance. Uh, McTiernan is getting angry. And T- McTiernan's a guy who's known for his sort of his temper. And and then he stopped and he looked at Joel Silver and Larry Gordon, who were looking at their monitor, looking at the playback, and they were laughing. And John McTiernan said, hold on a minute. He walked over to them. They had a chat. And he said, you know what, man? You do whatever you want. Do your thing. <laughs> I love it. I, I read I, I read something else, probably paraphrasing, where John McTiernan was clearly pissed off that Joel Silver had gone, this guy is fucking awesome. I love what he's doing. And he'd gone back over to Hot Bockner and gone, and gone, just do what the fuck you like. <laughs> uh, and, and Bogner ends by saying, I never thought the movie was going to resonate and I certainly didn't think that my character was going to resonate until I was at the premiere and I got a rousing applause when my head got shot off. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very funny. He's, he's so, so good. The thing, yeah. yeah, I don't... I know he's meant to be the baddie, but when he's trying to convince Holly to stay or whatever... 
And he tries to coke. So he's like, well, I've got mulled wine and an aged brie. And I was like, that is a firm yes for me, Alex. 100%. Yeah. But you know he's also the kind of guy that has no fucking clue what an aged brie is and has gone to some specialist wanky yuppie cheese shop and they've gone, this is an aged brie. So he's oh, gone, yeah. I'll take it. Yeah. Or he hasn't got any cheese. And yeah. I turn up and I'm I'll like, take it. I really want the cheese. And he's like, That's what I'm here for. No, it's just coke. <laughs> Um, and so we, they mentioned the Rolex as well that she's been recently been given yeah. um, to celebrate her success. We'll talk more about that later. I wonder if that will come back in. <laughs> um, and then we see Holly and John uh, talking to each other uh, for the first time. It's the first time we hear score in the movie since the opening when mm. they look at each other. And it's quite a moment. Um, they're in separate rooms. So sort of emotionally and physically, we see them separate while they're talking to each other and they have this argument. And I think it's really well played. You can see that they still love each other, but that argument feels very real and that came out of improvisation D'Souza said he didn't write that he yeah. just watched them go at each other those and... two together are amazing mm. I think they're brilliant My, I misremembered how estranged they are at the start like because I always miss the beginning of this film so I thought she was <laughs> more yeah <laughs> She's, she quite clearly wants him back and I didn't think that was the story. I thought when he turns up, she's like, okay, you're here and that's good, but you're here for the children. I don't really want anything to do with you, which mm. then makes the arc a lot stronger and a lot wider. Uh, but the minute they see each other, she wants him to do the right thing, mm. which they're then on this watch, and he's like, why wow, the argument's quite good because they fall into that argument quite quickly. He falls yeah, into it. Because he says something yeah. stupid. Yes, he does. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I it's not like men to do that. Well, but, and he, but he's he's hung up on the fact that she's come. Like they, I think it's even a conversation that he has with Argyle in the limo at the start. It's about the fact that he thought she'd come out here and fail, and he was expecting her to come running back to yeah. to him in New York, and he can't let go of the fact that that hasn't happened. Yeah, and, and she, also he's very hung up on her name change. Um, yeah, that's a that's a dick move. Yeah, it is. And it, it it's good because it makes me think, oh, actually, like... But I mean, it's a conversation because if she is genuinely going, look, it's a Japanese company and this will benefit me. So, you know, I'm going to... Can we have a chat about it? Like, and to That's do what's it, good about it. You can see both sides of the argument there. Yeah, but you know, you perfectly think... Perfectly reasonable argument. Well, yeah, but I think it's a... Com- I think... I think he's got every right to be pissed off that she changed her name. No, I don't. Really? No, it's her name. You know, it's just because you marry someone, you don't you don't own their name. No, I know, but to change it back from McLean to Gennaro so? without a conversation with him? Yeah, but I get the feeling she's been out there quite a long time and he's been stubborn and intractable in that whole time. Mm. So maybe the name change is a bit of her saying, right, I'm being serious now. I'm going to change my name to show you that I'm making my way to being over you. Right. Maybe. Can we talk about people dying? Yeah. Great. Uh, the call to adventure. Yes. So the terrorists arrive and take over the building. The music segues into Beethoven's uh, Ode to Joy. Oh, so well used in you, this movie. Beautiful. Uh, and when the heavies arrive, uh, they were cast to all look like European models. They do. <laughs> <laughs> they do. It's a great collection of bad guys. We see Alex Goodenough uh, for the first time. Uh, what an interesting story he has. Mm. Who plays Carl? Uh, he was a Bolshoi ballet dancer who defected to America in 1979 uh, starred in Witness in this and then died of alcoholism in 1995 at just 45 did he? yeah uh, the script says the door to a service elevator opens to reveal Hans Gruber impeccably dressed lean and handsome he steps out into the lobby like he owns the building and in a way he does yeah that's so good <laughs> but he was going to be dressed as a regular terrorist and I think it was Alan Rickman who was like I think I should wear a suit and they were like eh, why not okay then yeah actually no you're absolutely right and not for the first time Alan Rickman <laughs> He, he dominates the frame and he dominates all of his scenes from here on. Um, and it is fun watching them take over the building. People are getting killed. and But as McTiernan wanted, they've injected joy into this murder spree. Mm-hmm. 
it's what's what's amazing is I think this. I remember so this sequence from the first time I watched it. Just the efficiency with which they take over the building and how like well oiled their machine is, and you know that they're a threat. Like even the way the guy slides down the banisters to get down the stairs so really good. quickly, it's really good. and the bit where Carl. Uh, I, I think probably my favourite scene of them taking over the building is the bit where Carl um, appears with a chainsaw and his um, bruder is uh, trying to sort of sort the wires out yeah. so an alarm doesn't go off and he just chainsaws through them like, yeah. and he's laughing. To me, that establishes their brotherly love and that brotherly relationship they have like in about 17 seconds yeah. perfectly because you can tell he's the older brother and he's fucking with his younger brother and yet he clearly loves him the way he walks off laughing. I learned, I learned a lot actually about writing from that interview with Stephen D'Souza and he, called, he said Carl's brother is the dog villain and that's something that's from Westerns. In a Western, the main villain kills a sheriff the second villain kills his deputy and the third villain kicks a dog. So he's the dog villain. You've got to give him something to do that shows he's evil, okay. but he doesn't get one of the good things to do. So okay. he kicks a dog. Therefore, he's the dog villain. And he's Carl's brother. None of us are saying his name, <laughs> <laughs> even though he has a name. Yeah. <laughs> um, shall we have a break? Okay. Let's do it. This, this week on Stakhanov. Between the Lines with Melissa Reddy releases a brand new episode exploring the hot topic of head injuries in football. As well as exploring the sports link with dementia with neuropathologist Dr. Willie Stewart, Melissa spoke to ex-Tottenham star Ryan Mason, who was forced to retire after a devastating head injury aged 26. I couldn't look at light. I was sleeping for like 20 hours a day. I couldn't really hold a conversation. Um, like I say, when, when the brain gets an injury, the body almost just instinctively responds and it it almost just shuts everything else down. Meanwhile, self-care club Wellness Road Tested have launched a brand new epilogue show. Join Lauren and Nicole every Friday where they'll be hearing about your experiences, talking to the experts and reading the very best wellness literature in the self-care book club. I think it's a totally life-changing book for sisterhood and womankind. It's revolutionary in how to adopt self-love and live for who you are. Search Between the Lines and Self Care Club on your favourite podcast player. All that and more at Sukarnov. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we're back. And we've got the refusal of the call. Yes. So John doesn't really want to do this. This film is a is a reaction to the toxic masculinity of 80s action movies. But this hero spends the first 30 minutes trying to get help. He's the antithesis of those movies. Um, we see Gruber doing his thing. I love that he's reading from a file of facts. Right. It shows us that he's a businessman. Also shows us that iPhones weren't invented. <laughs> I think it's a really nice touch that he hums his own theme. <laughs> he sings Ode to Joy while he while he go around doing his stuff. Um, and and we, we learn that this is what happens when terrorists for hire get tired of fighting other people's political battles. So it was a political story in the book and here it was changed uh, to a robbery, but they've got the same demands, but they're just used as a cover story here. But 640 million dollars when i hear that figure i go that's for the for 1988 that is a big pot of money to be trying to rob and it i it makes you wonder why not every film does something with that amount of money when it goes like oh, we're robbing 100 million you go well that's big but 640 million makes you go i'd, I'd be on hans's crew yeah i agree that. with you but then this might be modern um like a modern look at it but there's an Alan Rickman line line later when they talk about the uh, ch- terrorist stuff being used as a cover and he's like by the time they realise what's going on we'll be on a beach somewhere mm. but the amount earning of mon- 20% yeah but the amount of money is so large that I thought you'll never be on a beach because you've stolen too much I think that's why the amounts when it's a smaller amount it seems feasible that you could get away with it because it could be written off but uh, that amount of money could never be written off but I think there's a suggestion here that it's there's some the, the Nakatomi Corporation are up to no good. Yeah, I think in the moment with Takagi, like the, the reason he won't reveal it is because it's not that he's just worried about them losing the money. It's because it's probably uninsured and there's a criminal element oh, to that okay. money. Okay. What's makes what makes you think that the fact that he doesn't want to do it? Yeah, the fact that he, I I think if that money's insured and it's corporate money, there is no reason to risk your life yeah. and to go. I I don't know. I think he's more scared of a, a potentially a bigger threat than Hans That's if he gives the money because up. Because a, a little bit of a wobble here is that they don't torture him. They're like, tell us. No, bang. So there's no beat where they're like, you really will tell us. We'll try and force you to tell us. He just says, no, they go, okay, fuck it. We'll do it the hard way. Yeah. But what, so maybe they know that he, they know what he knows kind of thing. Right, exactly. But also in that moment, it's what's so great is that you sort of go, Oh, hands isn't fucking round. So this is like, it, it makes him deadly serious. I found that very disturbing as a kid, that murder. 
It's the it's it was the biggest uh, problem that the censors had with this movie was the bit where the blood splashes against the window behind mm. him. Yeah, they negotiated with the MPAA. Uh, it went back and forth, frame by frame, uh, to decide how much red paint was allowed on the door, is how they put it. <laughs> Just one of those ridiculous conversations. <laughs> uh, we got McLean talking to himself. I don't uh, like that. I don't like it. I think you should. I think there's an opportunity to set that up on the plane that it's something he does when he's nervous. Because he's nervous on the plane. So I know it's crap, but just like, I talk to myself when I'm nervous because then I'd accept it, but I don't like people talking to themselves too much. I understand he's alone and he's not got a dog sidekick, unfortunately, or whatever. But it, it's jarring when someone talks to themselves in a film. I don't like it. In fa- and, and yeah, it feels natural to me in Die Hard, but maybe it's because I've seen it so often. It feels more natural here than when I see it in a lot of, a lot of films. I think he does it really well. He does it very well, yeah. I just wish I could buy it a bit The bit better. that you're talking about... The first time he does it, which is the bit you're talking about, is really jarring, where he's like, come on, John. Come on, John. John, come on, think, John, think. Yeah, and he's sort things. of like, he, but he's doing a weird walk, sort of like, he's spinning around <laughs> and like his arms are quite straight and he's like, come on, John, come on. Uh, and at that point, you're like, this isn't weird. Uh, but he get, you get used to it. You, yeah. you get very desensitized to it very quickly. Yeah. When he sets off the fire alarm and the fire trucks are coming and he says, come on, baby, come to Papa, I'll kiss your fucking Dalmatian. <laughs> did you, did you, do you know what that means? I, 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 I sort of like switch off to like the intricacies of what he's talking. I'm just like, I get it. He's excited they're coming and then I move on emotionally. What are you talking about? Well, he says that. Right. And I've researched it. Do you know what it means? I know what it means. Can I guess? Yeah, yeah. Is, a, is a Dalmatian a dog that you use to sniff out bombs? No, not, not far it, off. Is it? Is it every fire engine in Los Angeles has a Dalmatian uh, with it? it? It's it's the it's the fire station mascot in the states is a Dalmatian dog. Oh, yeah, they don't have a real dog though in the in the truck. Yeah. No, no, no. But no. they might have one at the station. That's a, that's a complication, isn't it? Like you're trying to put out a fire as someone fed the dog. Well, exactly. I mean, you know those those fire uh, hydrants that they have on the street? Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you've got a dog, it's going to be pissing on it. Yeah. You're like, get away. It's in the way. It. This doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, now we're on to crossing the threshold. Okay. And it's the fight with Carl's brother on the unfinished floor. Um, you won't hurt me, policeman. <laughs> uh, you have rules. And he says, that's what my captain keeps telling me. So we know he's a maverick. Um, and it's a great fight. It's a brutal fight. Um, ending with him breaking uh, Carl's brother's neck on the stairs. Yeah, I think it's an accident, though, isn't it? I, does he intentionally break it? Like, does he make him fall in a way? I always sort of just thought Carl's brother was a bit unlucky. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Uh, but he finds bullets, a walkie-talkie and a lighter, all of which will uh, become useful. Mm. Uh, Rickman is barking his orders um, and he's eating a chicken sandwich at the same time <laughs> while ordering death. And that was a Rickman moment where he said... Death should just be very easy for this guy to order. And while he's ordering death, he should be more interested in what's in his sandwich. Yeah. And it's so perfect for the character. It's, it's so blasé that he's more focused on his food. <laughs> uh, but it leads to one of the most famous moments in the film. Uh, now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> <laughs> With the bells jingling. Ho, ho. <laughs> What's that? What's that? What is that? That's my impression of Rickman. It's good. But you've got to do it. But it's got to be German. Ho, ho. That's ho. not. That's pretty close. That's all right. Thank you. That's not bad. That's right. I'm no. I'm no. And you've got to give him credit for trying. Yeah. I mean, we're not doing it, are we? Ho, ho, <laughs> ho. Um, but that really sums up the humour that runs all the way through yeah. this. Film. I forget what this is really—an action comedy. There's so much humour in this film, but I don't think of it as such. Is it written in blood? Because when I was yes. younger, it is written in blood. I believe so, yeah. But then it looks like lipstick. <laughs> it's so funny. Nettie went, 
where do you get a red pen from? Exactly. That was her first yes. question at that point. I'm Precisely. Like, I'm like, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Listen, but ho, 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 ho. And she's like, but the red pen. I'm yeah. like, I, well, I've watched it on my own, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Meeting with the... <laughs> Meeting with the mentor is the next section. And I'd say he's more of a sidekick oh, than a mentor. Wait, wait, wait. Very quickly, just while we're talking about the humour thing, it was quite funny about that. And it's only because I read it recently, because I think it's quite a new interview. But um, obviously, Bruce Willis came from being a comedy actor at the start of this. Everyone's like, what the hell is a comedy actor doing in a, an action movie? Uh, but for Die Hard 2, he, um, he really wanted much, much, much less humour in it. He decided that after this, despite the success this movie had had, he wanted John McClane to now be a much more dramatic character. So in Die Hard 2, Rennie Harlan had a hell of a time trying to get him to deliver any funny line whatsoever. And he talks about the the line, one of the great lines in Die Hard 2, where he is uh, getting the facts from the girl behind the desk and he shows her his ring and he goes, just the facts, ma'am, mm. just the facts. That's and good. he said uh, they did 15 takes of that and for every 15 takes, Bruce Willis would do one of the actual joke and mm-hmm. Rennie Van Harlem would then just use the one joke that Bruce Willis did. <laughs> I'm really surprised because Willis is famous for being easy to get along with, isn't he? <laughs> Have you, you've interviewed him. Uh, no, I've actually, we've discussed this before, but I actually pulled out of an issue with him because I could tell it was going to, it was turning to shit with the feedback I was getting from his people. And so I was like, fuck this, it's not worth it. Whereas obviously you've had I've told multiple you. experiences. Have I told you on this podcast, my the, the little and deck story? You've told me... Twice or three times, but it might have been in, it might have been in the pub. It might have been in the pub. Uh, it was for the movie Surrogates, and uh, I was I think it was for Surrogates. Anyway, I was behind Little Ant and Deck. You know the oh the, yeah the little versions of them from yeah. Saturday Night Takeaway, and they were in front of me, and I was like, this is odd. <laughs> I, I mean, even I knew at this point, Bruce Willis is was not easy to get on with, but all right. And they're like doing that, and we like, they've got a producer with them, like we're going to go in and finish Willis, and it's all very exciting for them, and they go into the room. About two minutes later, they come out in tears. Oh, no. <laughs> they walk out and they're crying. Oh, no. And, and I'm like, I was next. And I was like, <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> so I walked into the room and Bruce Willis uh, just went, is this going to be about the fucking movie? And I'm like, yes, it is. That's all he's going to be about. This is yes, gonna... sir. Clearly they'd gone in and done some Saturday night takeaway shtick and oh. he'd gone, I'm playing ball. That's so, awful. Yeah. Yeah, he's. He, well, I watched you. I watched you uh, at the Die Hard premiere. Oh my god! I watched Alex at the Die Hard premiere when I. So I was sitting in in the cinema, <laughs> and they beam in the red carpet interviews to the cinema for the people waiting. And so Alex had Bruce Willis on the red carpet with mm-hmm. him, but he kept moving his mouth away from your microphone. He was talking. He knew what he was doing. This is this is why I sort of forgive him everything because I think he's just got this absurd, slightly like awful sense of humour where he it's just fun for him so I got a microphone in front of him and I'm like oh Bruce will you tell us a bit about what it was like being in Die Die Hard 5 uh, this was and he's like yeah Yeah. and he's whispering into the mic so I I move it closer because I got people in my ear going move it closer we couldn't hear a bloody thing move the microphone closer so I move it closer he puts his hand on my arm pushes the microphone back down and carries on going and people in my ear going, you move the microphone closer. And I'm thinking, if John McClane pushes the microphone away from you twice, you do not fucking move it back. You do not move it back. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Uh, he was great in the junket the following day, though. He was fantastic. He was like, he went, oh, the, the one thing he said, have you seen the, the fifth Die Hard movie? There's a villain in it who dances as he's beating up Bruce Willis. And he, I don't think Bruce Willis liked that villain. So he kept going, what do you think of the dancing guy? You know the villain who dances? And I'm like, 
You know when you you sort of you feel like it's a trap. Yeah. <laughs> I, was I like, do know that feeling. I was like, I was like, Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, yeah, it sort yeah. of works. I think it, I, I think it works. And he's like, yeah, just makes me wish we hadn't killed Hans at the end of the first one. <laughs> Everyone's got a Bruce Willis story. Uh, we meet Al buying Twinkies for his pregnant wife, and we immediately like that man. Yeah. Um, Wesley Snipes auditioned for that character, which would have been a very different take oh, on no, Al, no, no. wouldn't it? Yeah, McTiernan. Uh, uh, the casting director says McTiernan originally wanted Robert Duvall in the role. Uh, but she went for uh, uh, Reginald Val Johnson. Uh, but McTinnon disputes that and says he actually said he wanted Lawrence Fishburne for it. Oh, I could have seen that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, allies and enemies next. Uh, we get numerous confrontations. He's moving from level to level, improvising on each new field of combat. This is the jungle thing. He, they yeah. reckon he's stripped down, so he's like he's in a jungle. Yeah. And even towards the end, he actually goes through like a, a, a fountain with like plants and things. Yeah. And it's very much looks like jungle warfare. Um, D'Souza says it is like a video game. Uh, and we've talked about Dread and the Raid on this podcast. It's it's It uses that, you know, end of level a boss kind of mm-hmm. structure. Did you ever play the Die Hard trilogy video game? No, uh, I don't think so. It was very good on the on the Sega Saturn. Both of these movies, Lethal Weapon had a video game which really? had on the Amiga, not very good. But the Die Hard video game, the first level was a third person shooter where you wandered around Asbury's Willis in Nakatomi Tower, killing people. Fucking great. Uh, D'Souza says that he, in his scripts, he works very hard to have characters constantly lose their guns. Right. So the characters themselves have to work harder. And then when you know that. Watching it is amazing how many times someone loses their gun in this film. Um, and he also keeps splitting up the terrorists. He said it's like teens in a slasher. I've got to keep them moving. Got to keep them separated. Uh, McLean drops uh, a body on Al's car and says, <laughs> you quoted it earlier, welcome to the party, pal. Yeah. I still use that line. I just use that line. That's just a, a normal line. line to say to someone. It's a great line, yeah. I use that a lot. The other one I use a lot is, uh, come out of the coast. We'll have some love. <laughs> I'll kiss your fucking Dalmatian <laughs> I like that. all the time. Uh, we've got the ordeal next um, because he hasn't just got to deal with terrorists. He's got idiots on the ground. Yeah. And he isn't wearing any shoes, but he's got idiots on the ground, including uh, Thornbird. Thornbird, which is William Atherton playing his Ghostbusters character. Yes! I love this man. Shut it down. D'Souza says uh, William Atherton. Does everyone just get a pass if they were in Ghostbusters forever? Oh my God. Do you want another Ghostbusters connection very quickly? Yeah, go on. So Reginald Vell Johnson nearly got um, Winston Zedmore, but he didn't. And so he's in Ghostbusters when the Ghostbusters go to prison, Uh which he says was a gift from Ivan Reitman for going through the audition process and all the rest of it. Do you want another Ghostbusters connection? Always. Uh, Twinkies, yes! (laughs) That's a good one. Uh, Do you know that uh, when the terrorists are firing, jumping ahead, uh, the rockets at the uh, armoured car... Uh Uh-huh. Uh, one of those terrorists uh, who gets killed by the C4 uh, that uh, Bruce Willis drops, one of those terrorists is... He, oh, I like the buzzing of flies to him. He is Vigo. It's Vigo the <laughs> no, Carpathian. Yeah, oh, wow. the, the guy from the painting in Ghostbusters 2 is, is one of those terrorists with the missile launcher. Amazing. Vigo the Carpathian is in this movie. Uh, so D'Souza says William Atherton was the official go-to guy for assholes after Ghostbusters. Yeah. And you've got Paul Gleason playing Dwayne T. Robinson, uh, a.k.a. his character from Trading Places. He is so stupid. I mean, that- <laughs> yeah. He goes from being in over his head mm. to being downright incompetent yep. to, to just being ridiculous and it does take you out of the movie a little bit it is the comic relief as I say that this is what I'm talking about when it goes down a comedy route and it doesn't really work here I, f- I feel like 
the terrorists at this point are becoming much more likable than the chief of police, the FBI, the the newsman, and Ellis. Like yeah. they've actually made the, the terrorists the heroes. Yeah. Almost, I think at it's this a point. problem because you don't know where to put your yeah. affections and your loyalties. With John McClane, it yeah, makes yeah. everyone. I get like... that. But also, I don't feel like the hostages are in enough danger because what happens to Mister Tagaki is kind of acceptable because he's the boss. So it's like you would get killed. But we haven't seen. You need to see an act of violence on an, a quote marks on a very innocent person. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I was I, when I was reading about this. Uh, Roger Ebert talks about like he gave the movie a bad review purely because of Deputy Dwayne T. Johnson. He says the character is so willfully useless, so dumb, so much a product of the idiot plot syndrome that all by himself he successfully undermines the last half of the movie. You don't. Yeah. You, don't you save that and you have that in your changes at the end. Hmm. But you don't you don't say the film's bad because of that one character. Yeah. I'm not saying that. Roger Ebert Roger, said it. Well, fuck Roger Ebert. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but also, you know, it's the thing that I hate, which is it, I don't like it when we're watching the police figuring out something we already know. If it has to happen to forge his uh, John McClane's relationship with Al, then fine. But ne- maybe just get through it a bit yeah. quicker because I yeah. know all of this. So yep. it's, yeah, it's Agreed. just a bit distracting. Um, John's got his walkie-talkie so he can <laughs> communicate with uh, Hans Gruber, which leads to some really great scenes. Um, Hans Gruber says you are, uh, no, I think he says this to the, the, the people down the bottom, orphan of a bankrupt culture that thinks he's John Wayne Rambo, Marshall, D- Marshall Dillon. Stephen D'Souza says that was him having a go at his critics, right. having a go at films like Rambo and John Wayne movies and Marshall Dillon. So he was having a little dig there. He says the yippie Kaye motherfucker came out of his first meeting with Bruce Willis when they discussed their shared love of Roy Rogers. It's not what Bruce Willis says. Bruce Willis says uh, yippie Kaye motherfucker was a joke. It was a throwaway. Uh, I was just trying to crack up the crew and I never thought it was going to be allowed to stay in the film. Mm. But I think D'Souza came up with it. Uh, we've got Ode to Joy segues into Singing in the Rain here a little bit as well. Um, those Both those tunes were used in A Clockwork Orange. Mm. And McTiernan wanted to use them because he saw the villains here as like the Droogs in A Clockwork Orange, which I think is interesting to sort of bring back that theme. Uh, the SWAT guys move in and get pricked by a rose. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's so funny because McTiernan left that in and D'Souza says, that guy was trying to build his part. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but you've also got straight after, you've got Al Leung um, grabbing a candy bar. And those human touches, I mm. think, are what part of the fun of Die Hard as well. They sort of, you bring it all back down, back down to earth. And as I say, the opposite of the testosterone 80s movies that we're used to. Uh, it's nasty this scene though, isn't it? Where the terrorists shoot to injure rather than kill the police so that the um, they'll send the RV in so they can kill more people. Yeah. I mean, they, uh, they are sort of, I mean, it's the right move for hmm. them in that situation. But yeah, bad, bad, bad guys. Uh, the, the guy who organised the rocket launcher on the set, he'd done 90 episodes of the A-Team. So he knew how to make those explosions look good. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they, because the rockets were just explode. It fascinates me, but they were explosives on a wire, so they weren't firing anything like a projectile. They were on a wire that like ran down from the window to the RV. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it sort of strangely is. What I can't believe, but I've read it in multiple sources, is that when he drops the C four down the elevator shaft and the fucking windows blow out. They blew out the floor of windows on that floor. They actually blew them out. And everyone like involved says, we weren't sure what was going to happen, but we just went ahead and did it. Well, glass will rain down yeah. on people. But I just, because I, uh, 
It puzzles me. You know when you find a bit of information, you go, well, what's the, what, where does this lead? And it just leads to loads of people going, mm. yeah, we blew out the windows <laughs> on a floor of the building. Yann de Bont says it. Like, he keeps going, obviously he was the uh, DOP on this. He keeps saying, yeah, we just uh, we blew, out the, uh, blew out the windows. But it's the whammo school of screenwriting that the D'Souza has. Do you know this? Yeah. No. Every 10 pages, you Every, have to have a whammo moment. Oh. Every 10 pages, you need a whammo. And then we've got uh, Ellis's final scene. Um, because he negotiates million dollar deals for breakfast he can handle this Euro trash uh, turns out Ellis can't well uh, better line than that uh, hey uh, Spreckensy talk <laughs> <laughs> this is a brilliant scene and when Alan Rim was like oh you figured all this out already it's so good you use a gun I use a fountain pen <laughs> yeah, and he's brilliant. got that shitty in grin mm. um, yeah. He says some racist stuff as well. I think that's on purpose, really, to kind of want us what to want him to die yeah. here. Uh, but that's a bit unpleasant. Um, in the script, it's Hans' baby. So I'm guessing Hart Bockner changed it to Hans' booby. Hans' booby. Which is I'm a great... white knight. It's so weird. It's, it's <laughs> a great line. But that's what makes it memorable. It's a bit of improvisation. If he'd mm. said Hans' baby, mm. we wouldn't be remembered. But booby... Booby's like a riff on the written word... When you're watching it, you're like, did he just say booby? No, it's not booby, B-O-B-B-Y. It's um, it's That's Bobby. You just wrote, you said Bobby. You spelled Bobby. uh, It's the, uh, sorry, yeah, I did. (laughs) Hello. B-O-O-B-Y. It's um, B-U. BBY, it's them. It's the uh, the Yiddish, it's Yiddish term of yeah. affection. It's Yiddish. Oh, Hans, yeah, yeah. Bobby, yeah, Bobby. Yeah, it's okay. it's, it's, it's oh, that is not it's a Jewish what thing. I heard. But Did that- you not think that Ellis was going to sell out Holly straight away because he mm. knows? It's who surprising she is. that he's surprising that he protects her. Yeah, it is surprising. It makes it makes you think maybe he does like her really because at the start you're thinking he's just trying to bang whoever he can and she seems like the person that he's yeah. going for that night. But yeah. he walks in there like, I've got something you need mm. and I can fix this. And I fully expect him to be like, she yeah. over there is his wife. Yeah, I wonder if he probably would have sold her out if he'd been given chance. <laughs> like, <laughs> if he was less coked up. <laughs> if, like, but honestly, I think I think maybe he didn't expect to get shot at that moment no. because it seems unlikely. It sort of goes against the entire character. Like if the if he if he just sort of got, I'm, I'm yeah. going to die and I'm still not going to give up like yeah. Holly Gennaro. But the but the interaction between McLean uh, and Ellis is really electric there, I think. And you mm. can see McLean, you can see Bruce Willis does well here. You can really see him thinking and figuring out how this is going to play out, which is when he changed his mind. And then obviously Ellis, when he changed his mind, there's just some good face acting, Vicky. There's and I know you like it. I do. I just can I just be devil's advocate and say I think I don't like. I think it's bollocks the way that the scene is written as it is. Ellis should sell Holly out. Obviously, he's a bad guy. But the scene is written like that so that we've got John McLean. You then can then say. To Al, I've tried to do the right mm, thing. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, mm. like you do, you don't like this man. Like, I'm not saying you want him to die, but the dialogue is layered in a way that's like you had your chance to save him, you tried to save him. You're a good guy. And it's like we know you're a good guy. I didn't buy it one bit that this that exchange would have happened like that. He should try and sell out his wife, and then John McClane has to step in or, or whatever. I just didn't. It's good face acting, but face acting sometimes it's not everything. Uh, although it does put Holly one step closer to Ellis's private bathroom. And she's after at the start. That's true. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is true. And it misses a trick, which I'll come to in the changes, but you could bring her into the action sooner if she's fully involved at that point. Uh, the, next, the next 
aspect of the hero journey is tests. And we have a test here where John McClane meets Hans Gruber. <laughs> um, D'Souza says, D'Souza says that um, Joel Silver has three rules for action movies. He says, number three is we're going to get an R rating anyway, so let's see some hot babes. Number two is shoot as much comedy as you can. If it's too much, you can cut it out later. And number one is these movies are hate movies. They're like romance movies, only they're hate movies. In a romantic picture, a boy and girl have a meet cute. They have several dates and they go off together. In a hate movie, they have a meet cute. A hate cute, they have several dates and one kills the other. The problem with this picture was how can we get them together when Bruce doesn't die because the other guy has a dozen people with him and complete control of the real estate. <laughs> so he had to find a way for Hans and McLean to meet. Uh, apparently they added because Rickman could do an American accent that they heard on the set, but... This to is, me, to my ear, he can't do an American accent, so, this so that is, makes no sense. This is so funny. So apparently he was messing about with the crew, putting on this American accent, and D'Souza was like, oh shit, you can do an American accent. And so runs over to Joel Silver and goes, Rickman can do it. And Joel Silver's like, great. And so they come up with this scene. John McTiernan, and he's, he's, a, he's a straight shooter, as John McTiernan. He goes, uh, I still hear Alan Rickman's English accent. I was never happy with the way he opened his mouth in that scene. I shot it three times trying to get him to sound more stridently American. It's odd for someone who's had such enormous verbal skills. He just had trouble getting an American accent. It really doesn't sound American. But oh, no. God. But, <laughs> but he isn't doing... The only thing that I will sort of say to defend him is he isn't doing an American accent, is he? He's doing a German accent doing an American... He's doing a German doing an American accent. The problem is when... Yeah, it's when, got layers. The, the big reveal when, like, when Bruce Willis goes... What, you think I'm fucking stupid, Hans? You're like, yeah, no one did, because you because you knew he was German because of the accent, right? Yeah. But it's not that. He doesn't see through the accent. He does. No. So this is the bit I was talking about, because they didn't know how they were going to end it. Right. Um, but they didn't know how they were going to end the movie. So you know there's a bit at the start where they arrive in the truck, and uh, they're, they're all coming out of the back of the truck. Mm -hmm. So there was a shot at that point where they all synchronised their same brand, Tag Her Watchers, and they had to cut that out because you saw them walking out of the truck and the truck was empty mm -hmm. behind them because they hadn't figured out they're going to have an ambulance in it at the end. Right, yes. So um, it's actually in that scene, uh, Bruce Willis notices his watch, yeah, which relates back to them synchronising watches at the start and he's noticed throughout all the terrorists all the same have the same watch and that's how he works out. It's oh, Hans. Okay. And they came they made this decision just before they were shooting the Takagi death. And so they had to completely reframe that because initially um John McClane could see Hans Gruber. Yeah. And so they had to shoot it in a way that he can't see his face because that would have spoiled oh, this scene right. as well. So yeah, it changed, right. it shifted a lot in the movie. Uh, but I love the way it's shot here because it suddenly turns, we get a lot of Dutch angles suddenly when, yeah. when he's kind of off kilter and, and you're not sure who's, who's got one up on the other one. And he's also performing that entire sequence as Alan Rickman on one leg because he, you know, the jump down where, uh, mm -hmm. in the previous scene, he damaged his knee so badly he couldn't put any weight on it. So he, uh, even though it's shot from the waist up, he's on one leg. <laughs> So uh, John McClane's on the run from him at this point, and what does Hans Gruber say when he's noticed he's got bare feet? Oh, uh, <laughs> Scheistem Fenster. <laughs> Carl, Scheistem, shoot the glass. Yeah, I'm wearing my shoot the glass jumper. It's a very cool It's really amazing. I just Because no one in this room ever puts clothes on, mm. so when you start it's putting so a jumper hot. on, it's like, what's happening? I knew Alex was telling a Bruce Willis. I knew it would last a while. Yeah, fair I had time. Yeah, um, it's also uh, incorrect German. Uh, that that doesn't... That's, it should be... Scheiss 
auf das Fenster, shoot out the window, not scheiß dem Fenster. Uh, but that makes sense because all the German, in the original version, all the German, uh, the theatrical version in America, they just said in the, in the script, uh, they, they speak in German. And so they hired all these actors who didn't know German. And so all the actors on set just spoke made-up words that sounded <laughs> vaguely German. And it was only until the home release that they redubbed it with people speaking German. Okay. Uh, and wow. in Germany, when they released it, they uh, they didn't say they were Germans. They called them European robbers so as not to offend the whole of Germany. <laughs> uh, Gruber's losing his shit now. And I love that line when Holly says he's still alive. Only John can drive somebody that crazy. I think that's a lovely line. And then we get the approach to the inmost cave, which is when we have doubts and fears creeping in. And this is John cleaning his wounds. It's the all is lost moment, his lowest point, the dark night of the soul, his darkest hour, the calm before the storm. Um, and we learn that Al killed a kid, yeah. <laughs> which is a very strange thing. The way they tell this story of him <laughs> shooting a 13-year-old dead um, is that we're supposed to feel sympathy for Al in this. Well, we're also supposed yeah. to go like... I've, I hope he learns how to shoot again by the end of this movie. <laughs> sure. That's his arc. Yeah, it is. Which is, I mean, they haven't got a lot of time, but it just it just seems, kid, did it have to be a child? I see what you mean now. Yeah, <laughs> I really liked it. All, all the times I've seen it, I'm just like, wow, that's so dark. John, John McClay says, oh, I'm sorry, man. Don't feel sorry for Al. Feel sorry for the kids. Oh, yeah. I'm really sorry <laughs> for that kid that you killed. Uh, we've got this celebratory scene of the vault um, opening, which is one of those moments with the music and the smiles. It makes you feel like you're rooting for them at that point. Will you just talk Thank me through you. it, though? So much. That is because that is a, such a big moment for me. It is a me. big moment, but have, have I just misheard this? Isn't it that if the power goes off, the safe opens in case of terrorists? That doesn't make... No, not in case of terrorists. I don't for think, terrorists? To help uh, them out? It's uh, They have to cut... Uh, so the actual thing is, it's they have to cut uh, a cable, which yeah. is the FBI will cut as part yep. of for their plan, yep. which is what they always do, their system. But that cable, according to Steve D'Souza, I think... Opens the vault. It runs It runs under the sea to Tokyo, and the vault mm. is linked to Tokyo. And by cutting the power, it cuts the undersea cable right. to Tokyo, okay. which means that the vault will open. Right. Yep. Okay, that's handy. But it's basically an Ocean's Eleven film, isn't it? Yeah. With the, the big con to get the vault open. It's Gruber's 12. Right. Um, uh, the FBI uh, then get involved. Uh, both Johnsons, um, <laughs> older Johnson, uh, was in Vietnam, um, and and uh, D'Souza says that this was his Vietnam moment in the film because no matter how much firepower these guys have, like the Americans, the committed guerrilla fighters are very hard to defeat and bring down, and so. Um, but before they come in, Al, when he finishes his moment on the phone to, sorry, John, when he finishes his moment on the phone to Al, he's fundamentally changed. We see him vulnerable and he's realised he's just got to say sorry. He's come to this realisation. That helicopter moment is fucking great. Well, yeah, let's let's talk about then probably the most famous action scene in Die Hard and maybe one of the most famous scenes in action movies. Mm. Um, so McLean's heading up to the roof to figure out what Hans is planning with all those explosives. Um, and he sees the truth and he leaps into action. And there's this real escalation now because Carl finds him and takes his gun. And there's this personal brawl between the two of them. And apparently they barely use Stuntman. And you can kind of see it here. Um, John's a brawler. He fights dirty. And uh, it ends with John hanging him from chains. Mm. Not killing him, though. No. He can survive hanging from chains, apparently. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he does have his hands <laughs> sort the of, right of money. <laughs> tucked, tucked cleverly. 
You have to pay a lot, <laughs> but a little, but a little later, it's not. It's, it's, it's not cheap. It's skilled work. Do you know what I mean, yeah. why, why should it be free? And you'd want a professional doing it. Let Absolutely. Me tell you, to actually take any pleasure from not it. Not something to do with amateurs. You need, you need to know that they know what they're doing, and you need a safe word. Otherwise, it's a really different. You need experience. a safe word. But a little later, the hostages are coming short. down. <laughs> Just something short. Not the tagline from the post. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine is Scheiß auf das Fenster. Scheiß auf das Fenster. Uh, there's a lot happening here. Hans sees uh, the kids on the telly and realizes that Holly is Mrs. McLean at the same time as John is fighting <clears throat> Carl and the FBI is approaching in their choppers and they say we can live with losing 25% of the hostages. Yeah, that's great. Um, it's like they're like the terrorists, though. They don't care about collateral damage yeah. so there's the similarities there um they spent six months planning this chopper approach they had nine camera crews they had two hours and three goes to shoot it on a sunday evening and mctiernan said he was terrified because it was so dangerous uh, when that helicopter was flying next to those actors on the roof that was all really happening in downtown la and and he said anything could have gone wrong well my favorite is that the lapd told joel silver that they could not bring those helicopters in on the deck, as it was written in the script, they couldn't fly low down the streets of Los Angeles. And Joel Silver went, absolutely. I will, of course, not do that. We'll keep well above 1,500 feet. And then to the helicopter pilots, he went, bring them as low as you possibly can go and flew them in really low. And the thing was, once they get to the top of the building, like the, the thing on everyone's mind was this was still quite close to the horrible accident with Victor Moreau and the kids on the set of the Twilight Zone movie. Mm. And so that was going through everyone head, everyone's head when the helicopters were so close to the, the actors playing the hostages on the roof of the building. And that's when McTinn went, like, we need to not uh, take any risks here. Mm. So uh, John gets up to the roof and forces the hostages off after killing poor Al Leung. Um, and we see Carl hanging there still to remind audiences that he's dead or isn't dead. And, and Matinan on the commentary says that when you see Carl there, he wasn't sure if that was, he got that right or not, having Carl hang there, mm. to remind us of what. Because if you're going to establish him as alive later, then surely this is telling us that he's dead a second time. So it's about establishing geography as well at this point. Like the one thing that this movie does really well is you always know, considering you're running around all these different locations in a skyscraper, you always know where you are like, and where Bruce Willis is in relation to the roof, in relation to the party, which is great. And uh, you know, the, the scene that you think is quite gratuitous, you know, when he runs past the, 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 the pinup on the wall and uh, yeah. mm. twice and the second time he, he like sort of kisses her boobs or whatever. Um, that is just to let you know, okay, so you're back at the elevator shaft mm-hmm. at this point. So um, this is the moment when John McClane uh, ties a hose around his waist because uh, the FBI think he's a terrorist, so they're going to continue to come and blow the roof up. So he jumps uh, just as the roof blows and the choppers fall. Um, and Jeb Stewart, in his version of the script, said he calls this good news, bad news, is how this is written. So the good news is I've escaped, the bad news is... I can't get through the window. The good news is I have a gun. The bad news is when I break through the window, uh, the fire hose falls down and drags me down. The good news is I'm smart enough to remove it. So you keep having these back and forth. And D'Souza says he owes that scene, the way he wrote it, to Harold Lloyd, who did that fire hose gag before, but for real, rather than John McClane, who was doing it with stunts. So, yeah, it's just one of those really memorable scenes, I think. Yeah, and the roof blows, and then you get the helicopter... Uh, crashing down the side of the building, a sort of slightly. I, when I watched it again last night, I'm like, 
the helicopter should have probably fallen down by now. It's sort of the building yes. explodes and then the helicopter sort of isn't there. <laughs> and then just at the right time when McLean is sort of safe, then the helicopter comes down. And then you get that line from uh, Gleason where he goes. It's a, an ad lib from Paul Gleason um, where he says, we're going to need some more FBI guys. And that is Jed Stewart's favourite line in the movie. And it's D'Souza's most hated line in the movie. He thinks it's a joke too far. Mm. I really like it. I was saying to Vicky beforehand, it, in, like in Jed Stewart's um, original script, it was going to be Bruce Willis, John McClane, defusing the C4 uh, and stopping the bomb going off. And it was Joel Silver who went, the minute you have shown the audience that the roof is loaded with fucking C4, you need to blow the shit up. And so he had to go back and rewrite it with an explosion. And can you imagine if that scene didn't have an explosion mm. at the end? It would have been like, what? Mm. Uh, we find out how they're planning to escape now uh, is via an ambulance, which famously uh, was added at the end of the screenwriting process. So there's no ambulance in that truck at the beginning where there should be. But you can't really see it. They don't hold that shot for long. The terrorists are kind of in front of the truck. So I don't think it really matters. I think they're more worried about us not seeing that ambulance than the audience actually is. Mm. Um, and interestingly, uh, that is not an original idea of Stephen D'Souza's. In 1987, he wrote a TV movie called The Spirit, starring Flash Gordon himself, Sam J. Jones, really? as the comic book character. And the villain was so evil that she was going to blow up a children's hospital and escape in a fake ambulance. D'Souza said, no one saw that movie, so let's use it again. <laughs> uh, he said no one would notice, and no one did. In the script, the moment when um, Hans Gruber, who's um, taken Holly up to uh, the vault now, uh, says, I'm an exceptional thief, he slaps her in the script. And it's not in the film. Um, Instead, he sort of gets really close in her face and Mm. shouts at her. I'm really glad. Yeah. Isn't it so silly? Like, it doesn't matter how many people he kills. I just don't want him to slap a woman. Yep. (laughs) Because <laughs> you want to still like him. Yes, I do. I really want to like Hans Gruber. And she hasn't really done anything wrong, so... You know. I don't know. I I think I think maybe he should have slapped her because, you know, we'll get into it, but he's too likeable. Yeah. Like, you 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 know the bit we were just talking about where this, when the safe opens and the glee on their face and, like, you ask for a Christmas miracle, I give you the FBI. And it's like the ode to joy is playing. You're like, I really want them to fucking succeed. <laughs> Uh, and Argyle gets his hero moment by punching out Theo. Yeah. Uh, now we've got the reward of the hero's journey, um, and it, that's also called seizing the sword, which mm. is kind of literal here. Um, so uh, John is broken, battered, and bruised, and he approaches um, Hans Gruber and he drops his gun. Uh, they, they exchange yippee-ki-yays, and um, the camera cuts to his back, and we see that he has taped the gun to his back and we get the uh, the jingle bells happening. Um, it's such a moment, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, he shoots Hans um, and says, uh, happy trails, Hans. Happy trails, Hans. In the script, it was, you were right about us Americans. He blows smoke from his barrel. We are cowboys. That doesn't work. I'm no. glad they changed that. No. Because uh, there's a whole argument that like him showboating here is how he ends up, his ego... Uh, almost ends up with him losing Holly uh, because in that moment where he's like, happy trails, hands, like, <laughs> like Alan Rickman grabs her and yeah. like mm-hmm. he could have maybe, Bruce Willis should have been mm-hmm. straight in there to stop that. But it's like, there's a whole argument about the sort of ego and it's about ego, this movie. And if you, 
do things based on your ego, then you end up fucking up. So he does the double shot here, as you say, and Hans has got Holly and he is falling off the side of the building, but he's grabbed hold of Holly and it's her watch that saves yeah, her. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> the, watch that, the watch that represents her career and uh, her success yeah. apart from John. But there's two readings. So you can read it as... Is it is it a judgment on her because he's grabbed her by the watch and so if he just had her hand and there was no watch he would have slid down her sweaty hand and been gone. So John McLean is right, you've been greedy for wealth and this Rolex is a symbol of that. Or is it that the watch isn't, you can't get as much purchase on a watch as you can on a hand and therefore her wealth and success of what saved her life. So there's two readings which I'm very happy with but I just fucking love a callback and to have the, to, to be the watch is amazing. Yeah, and we and then we get the fall, uh, the forty foot fall onto an airbag that um, Alan Rickman did in front of a blue screen, so that they could shoot it in a uh, close up and see the terror in his eyes. Uh, John McTiernan says you can only get that effect on the face when gravity is at work, <laughs> so they got him to do it. Um, and they received an Academy Award nomination for visual effects, and it's for this scene. Um, he wasn't dropped when he was expecting it, that's, is what Jan de Bont says. No, there's a few people who actually say that. I, I tend to believe that story, unless you're about to tell me that Alan Rickman did an interview mm-hmm. where he disagrees, but they were, they, were, they were meant to release him on zero, mm-hmm. and they released him on one. Right. So his expression is like, he doesn't expect to be let go. He's prepped himself for zero, and then they do him early. And so his perfect expression is born out of actual fucking terror at yeah. why he's falling and something's gone wrong. You can't believe you can do that to actors, can you? Like You can when it's their first feature <laughs> film and they're, <laughs> they're very, yeah. very cheap. They've been paid £2.50. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would be annoyed because I would say to them, I can act, that's why you've hired me. True, yeah. I can do this. You say that, but this is his first action movie. I mean, by his own uh, account, he said it was really difficult because I'd never been around uh, action like this. So he flinched every time he fired a gun or was too close to gunshots and John McTinnon said he had to cut round a lot of Alan Rickman flinching at the gunfire so maybe it was a situation like that the, the Jan de Bont quote which I won't say because you said it just not as well um, is that Alan Rickman at first he's he's slightly confused and I think it's that confusion you get on his face yeah. the confusion that he's been dropped early but the confusion that Hans Gruber is feeling oh shit I'm going to die like yeah. this is it so I mean it's really effective and it still looks good so we're on the road back now According to the hero's journey, uh, this is John and Holly emerging arm in arm, um, her taking back his name. They see Al laugh, embrace. Um, he introduces her, She introduces herself as Holly Gennaro McLean. Um, it's all lovely. And resurrection, which has to happen in a film like this. Uh, Carl is resurrected mm. um, and Al shoots him so he can fire a gun again. Set up, pay off. No one cares about the 13-year-old kid that died. <laughs> Um, it's a very happy ending for a bloke who killed a, 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 an unarmed child. Um, but as I said, it's a very similar shot to the shot in uh, in, in Lethal Weapon. Yeah. And then we've got the bank bonds falling uh, like snow. Mm. And then Return with the Elixir is the end of the hero's mm. journey. And John gets to go home with his wife. Our guard arrives. Holly punches Thornburg, which is nice. I've, oh, I've, yeah. you know, I love Holly all the way through this film and she does get a chance to smack someone who True. deserves it. And Let It Snow starts playing and we've got our Christmas movie. Um, So apparently when this was released, uh, the trailer had audiences laughing at it and booing. 
um, Bruce Willis and the whole concept. Um, so they took Bruce Willis off the posters about a month in advance because they thought it was a problem. Um, and then they released it. It was a critical and commercial hit and they put his face back on the poster straight away, which is why we've got that famous poster. Let's do the bits. Victoria, what is your best scene? I can't decide between Alan Rickman falling from the building, but I think actually it is the smashing through the window, the good news, bad news, mm. because it's perfect. It's, it's tight, very, really well timed. And it's as it's everything you said that it's good. It's bad. And the beat's just up and down. Um, mm. right, you could just smash through it and you'd be fine. And as an action film, you'd be like, that's absolutely fine because it's, it's scary and all the rest of it. But it goes wrong and it goes right and all the rest of it. So I like that. I'm going to pick that one. Yes. Me too. I've got that one as well. For the reasons you said, Alex. Yeah, I'll have that one too. Lovely. Wow. I'm surprised because there's so many good scenes in this film. Uh, MVW, most valuable whatever, uh, Alex. I think it's impossible to pick between Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman. I think they complement each other so well. So I'm picking Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman. Because I refuse to pick. Okay, so Alex has to get a vote this week. Vicky, how about you? Well, I feel like a bit of a twat now because it really is Reginald Vell Johnson as Sergeant Al Powell because... What? We've not talked about him at all. No, but because of what he did. Like, when I saw that oh, he's okay. like, oh, we killed a kid, I was like, wow, that was really bad. But then when you think about it, it's like, that is really bad. And why... But he gets... I, I know you think John McClane gets a big art where he learns to say sorry to his wife, but that feels like a bit of a micro moment compared to, I've never been able to draw my gun. I'm a desk jockey now and now I'm going to kill Carl at the end so I want it to be him but I feel seedy saying that now so I'm going to pick um, Holly and John's relationship for some reason the two of them together they go they go into my like canon of brilliant rom-com couples <laughs> mm. I just I really believe in them I want to be them I want to be in that relationship I really care about what happens to them and I, I completely buy that they are going through that crisis and I don't know why I say her particularly like there's something about her that she's a great match for him and it just works. So I'm going to pick their marriage. Fine. <laughs> uh, I like the fact that Hart Bochner really takes his shot in this film. Yeah, why they not? say you should take your shot, but I'm not yeah. going to pick him. I'm just giving him a call out. But I did say the issues a couple of weeks ago with Olympus Has Fallen and White House Down with both movies was that they didn't have Alan Rickman. So I feel <laughs> like I've got to pick Alan Rickman here. But I just, I love the way it's a seduction. He seduces characters in the movie and he seduces us as an audience. That's the thing. When he comes to the party and, he's, and he walks in, you'd be like, yay, Alan Rickman's here. <laughs> the party's here. Welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I compare it to Mark Rylance, really, this English stage actor who just with their first movie has such an impact in America and, and become such a global star. And um, yeah, it's it's one for the ages. So uh, Rickman. And what would you change, Victoria? So either, I know this is impossible, but it's Alan Rickman that comes back to life and Al shoots him <clears> rather <throat> than Carl because he's your big baddie. So I know it's daft and it's impossible because he's just fallen from a great height. But <laughs> if there was a way to do that, it's like, I do care about Carl, but I don't care about him as much as um, Hans. Um, or a little thing, just uh, Ellis sells Holly out when he goes into the room with Alan Rickman and it brings her into the plot more and she's more instrumental in helping her husband and then she can understand what her husband's line of work actually is and so their reconciliation is on, you know, there's just a bit of sort of balance on each side. Yep, agreed. Uh, it's a good one, uh, Alex. Uh, I would like, I said it earlier, I'd like Hans to get away with it. Okay. Uh, I found this difficult. I, th I think it's like asking what you change about the Mona Lisa or the Sistine Chapel. Mona Lisa's too small. That's what that's what you would change. Yeah. Yeah, it is. 
But this is better than both of those things. <laughs> I think so. Um, <laughs> Sistine Chapel's very crowded. I've just realised that I've done the same one as the last one. I wrote two words, women baddies. Like, it is 13 <laughs> men. They could have had a couple of, of German women. Sure, kicking yeah. This shit. Why not? Um, and there's, there's women terrorists in the book. They literally went out of their way to change it so it was only men. Um, all the women actors were busy being bare-chested lady. <laughs> <laughs> well endowed lady. Yes. Um, but actually, now, you know, having this discussion, maybe I would have had Deputy Dwayne T. Johnson be less ridiculous yeah because we all seem to agree on that so right should we do the verdict let's do the verdict you want answers I think I'm entitled you want answers I want the truth uh, Victoria oh this is really hard I've been thinking about it all week and I thought I would just decide in the room because I have not I didn't have a favourite um, coming in here so I'm going to look at it from the couples and in Lethal Weapon the tension between um, Riggs and Murtaugh is fantastic in that they both want completely different things. Their characters want different things, but you care about both of them, even though they're on different paths. But then with Die Hard, the, I think it's more entertaining as a film um, and it's one I would rather watch again. And uh, and I love John and Holly as a couple, really love them. So I'm going to pick Die Hard. Chris? Yeah, I know it's not hard this week. I mean, there'd been bud- buddy cop movies before Lethal Weapon. Freebie and the Beans is a good one. 48 Hours, Running Scared, all good, all before Lethal Weapon. But this is the buddy movie. Um, but with Die Hard, it didn't just create that genre. It sort of redefined the concept of an action hero, making him real and relatable and much more interesting. It meant we got much more interesting films after this in the action genre. And everything works. Joel Silver calls it a Swiss watch. I'd say it's a freight train. So while Lethal Weapon is a good film, this is one of the best films of all time. Die Hard wins. Yeah, I mean, I stand by putting them together because I think what do you put against Die Hard? Uh, there are very few films, and I think Lethal Weapon is probably the best film to put against it. It's a Christmas action movie, but mm-hmm. it pales in comparison. And that is saying something because Lethal Weapon is still a great movie, but mm. compared to Die Hard, it's just not in the same league. So yeah, three for three, as it should be. Mm. Die Hard is our winner this week. What are we doing next week? Whose choices is it? It's Chris. Uh, shall, shall I step in and help you here? It's Chris's choices. <laughs> yeah. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Because you did the holiday in love, yeah, actually. I did, oh I did leave the weapon and die hard. I've been prepping elf. <laughs> you haven't. <laughs> uh, all right. I don't know who's got what, though. I've got elf, so would you just send that to me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vicky's right. <laughs> got elf, and Alex I'm has doing Santa, Santa, Santa Claus, Claus the, the movie. movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah sorry, yeah. sorry for that. Yeah, I'm doing Santa Claus the movie. Couldn't have prepped that, could you? Uh, right, that's it then. Santa Claus the movie <laughs> and Elf is our final... Is our final... Final Christmas countdown Yeah, it's going to be three episodes next week, though. What? Yes, that's mm. right. No. Yeah. Yeah. A Boxing what? Day bonus. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> you're, getting a, you're getting a Boxing Day bonus from us to you. Oh, great. Who, who doesn't love a bonus show? It's free. <laughs> You're going to love it. Uh, right, then, that is us out of here. Uh, next week is Elf and Santa Claus the movie and a bonus show that I just found out about. Uh, do uh, subscribe to us and rate and review us wherever you get our podcasts, uh, Apple, Spotify, or other. Thank you for listening. Congratulations to Die Hard. Back in a week. Well, Monday. Bye. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.